back. I'm talking pedicure on our toes, toes. Trying on all our clothes, clothes. Boys blowing up our phones, phones. Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and films and streaming television. I've chosen, as our intro song this week, TikTok by Kesha, a song that makes me feel very old indeed. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Book Talk, the book version of TikTok, as well as Bookstagram a little bit later, which makes me feel even older. We'll also be discussing... The weeks uh, we're going to be discussing the week in books and film, and we will have a great time with a whole bunch of our contributors. So thank you for joining us. We are taping this live on the Clubhouse app, and this podcast will also be appearing on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else where delicious podcasts are on the menu. So welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review. We'll start off with Katie Smith. Katie, hello. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm great. I was just thinking in 2009, I think I was like 16 <laughs> when that song came out. Yeah, I was 39. <laughs> I was 39. Right. Uh, so I was old already. I was already an old dad. Um, and, uh, and and that song made me feel very old. Yeah. Um, I mean, are, are people really still partying all night and waking up in bathtubs? You know, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, that's, that wasn't, you know, and I, I wasn't exactly shut down party wise then, but uh, I don't know, that song, that was way out of my, out of my comfort zone. But even so, compared to what, compared to what you write about, um, I, I, yeah, that, that, that song is completely comprehensible to me. You, you um, you're sort of our, uh, fly on the wall of the literary internet. This week you wrote about, uh, Bookstagram and oh, BookTok. Yeah. Yes. I love Bookstagram. Bookstagram is like my favorite corner of the internet because I don't know. I feel like on Twitter people are talking about their book opinions sort of aggressively, maybe a little violently, a little Lauren Huffy. And then, you know, on TikTok, you have all these like teens who, I mean, if I feel like if Kesha feels incomprehensible to you in 2009, book talk feels incomprehensible to me in 2021. Um, but books to is just like all of these like cute little earnest people who, you know, taking photos of their favorite book covers and all these really great content creators, like talking about books they really love and like doing live Q and A's with authors. It just feels extremely wholesome. So I am so pleased to be talking about it. To me, like a con, Content creator is, I mean, I guess we're creating content here, but like to me, mm-hmm. the people who write the books are the content creators. The, yeah. The bookstagram people are, are just kind of, they're, they're fans, they're book fans. Mm-hmm. I guess they're kind of hosting Instagram talk shows in some ways about yeah, books. Or like there's, oh, I forget the name now, but I'll have to look it up. There's one account that I follow. It's like kind of an older woman, um, like in her like 30s, I think. Oh, older, who, yeah. 
Well, I mean, older than me. I'm not like a teen. Who she like stages like herself and her outfits and these like really beautiful landscapes. It's like there. It's very much like art based on book covers as a way to help promote them. So I feel like there is actual like original content being created by folks, not always just you know like regurgitating or whatever, like reviewing. Right. Um, There's a lot of creativity that goes into it. Right. And you know what I found interesting about your piece this week is that these creators are now asking um, the publishing industry to pay them. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, I don't know. I am not a bookstagrammer, so I don't know for sure how long that's been a conversation. Um, But particularly, like two months ago, there was that New York Times piece that came out. And I think the, the sticking point on it was that folks went on the record. I think it was from, like, Random House or something. I can look up specifically which of the... Uh, publishers it was, but went on the record saying that, yeah, we are working with and paying people on TikTok to promote our books. Um, TikTok's a relatively new medium, and granted, uh, as that New York Times piece goes into, that like the people on there are sort of like mega, mega promoting like a select few books. They named like five or six. Um, the one that comes to mind is Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles. It came out in 2011. And like, I think it did pretty well. It won uh, the Orange Prize, which was the Women's Prize for Fiction then. Um, but now, you know, 10 years later, it's on the New York Times bestseller list for the first time. It's selling like nine times more copies than it did 10 years ago, averaging 10,000 copies sold a week. Like it's wild how uh, well books are being pushed there. Um, right. So, so what you're saying is publishers are paying uh, TikTokers to do this, to, to promote Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles? Yes. Why did they, well, no, I've read that, <laughs> I read that book. I read it, I read it last summer, I believe. Uh, yeah. Well, and, I don't think know. anyone's, I, I should, let me take it back. I don't think anyone's paying TikTokers to promote Madeline Miller's book, Song of Achilles, but I think seeing, um, I don't necessarily know why that book came up. I think for whatever reason, somebody put it on a list and somebody else saw it and it kind of went viral that way. Um, recently, well, it, but I think well, seeing how well those are selling, people aren't, uh, publishers are now paying TikTokers to sell like books that are coming out now or the fall or in the winter. Um, all right. Well, I, I, my theory about the song of Achilles is that it's a tragic gay romance, which is the kind of thing, the kind of thing that, um, teenagers like. Oh yeah. I mean, the videos, uh, promoting it are like women, like, you know, throwing their book across the room, like screaming. They're so frustrated by it. So yeah, um, it was tough, 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 tough for Achilles and Patroclus there. They just, they, they, you know, Achilles had, uh, you know, he was destined by the gods to fight the mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, well, you know you know the story. So yeah, um it's yeah, I I feel it feels like payola to me. It feels like a bad trend. Um and mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like it. Um Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the argument is if you're paying like these teens who have just popped up on this relatively new platform versus folks who have been like engaging with your authors and your books for years, like a lot of times publishers I know reach out directly to certain people on bookstagram and say, Hey, this book is coming out. Why don't you schedule an interview with them, um, on your own platform, on your own time, um, or a giveaway or whatever. Um, and I think that kind of targeted, we want you specifically to be working on this. They're like, well, if you're going to pay TikTokers to do that, you should be paying people on Instagram as well to do that. That, That's fair enough. I just, you know, Mm -hmm. personally, I I am, uh, you know, I would, whether I'm opposed to it or not, I guess it doesn't matter. But, uh, I I just think the idea of, it's like saying, we're going to pay you to write a, a review. 
Right, I understand that. Um, you know, and and, and that's that's because that's essentially what this is. This is right. a this this is and uh, you know and, and um, it's one thing, you know, to provide free books to people mm-hmm. in exchange for reviews. It's another thing to provide cash because yes. that to me does not strike that does not strike me as as a legitimate. Um, as something legitimate, like you know, if 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 someone gave me, I don't know how much they're paying these TikTokers, but let's say a couple grand or whatever. If someone gave me two thousand dollars to say, hey, you know, this uh, this vampire novel is this is, is the best, <laughs> I, I, I might I might consider saying it. Right, and I think it's the difference between like putting a review in Book and Phil Globe or on your personal platform or whatever, versus like being in conversation with an author, facilitating something, holding a space for them, like kind of having an event around it. Um, a lot, lots of publishers like to have like cover reveals be on people's Instagrams because it's a very visual medium. Like like an um, unboxing, like an unboxing yeah, video. Those uh-huh. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, which I mean, there's analogs and other mediums for that. So I don't know. I can understand it. Um, I went to like kind of a zoom town hall with like publishers and bookstagrammers and whomever, like all kinds of different stakeholders. And what I thought was really interesting is there was a rep from Simon and Schuster there who asked, she was like, I just want to ask the creators who are here. Um, don't you think it's enough to be like, if, if I'm asking you to have a Q and a on your platform or whatever, aren't you really being paid in like promotion? You know, you're driving people to your platform. And a lot of the bookstagrammers pointed out, like we have more followers on Instagram than, you know, penguin random house, than the authors themselves, than, you know, whomever else could be facilitating this. So like, really it's not doing me a service. Like I already have a platform. I don't need help in generating that. Um, which I think is pretty telling of the way people are thinking about it on either side. It's a frightening, brave new world as far as I'm concerned. You know, when I, yeah. when I was coming up in the literary world 20 million years ago, it was like you, your book came out, you got a review, and then if they liked it, you got to go to the 92nd Street Y and talk to Sarah Vowell or whoever. Right. <laughs> that yeah, was as, what as it was. Fellow, hey, Neil, as a fellow old person, I mean, this uh, <laughs> also reminds me a little bit of um, – you know, in, just influencers in general, and I put mm-hmm. influencers in quotes for sure, getting paid and, you know, having to indicate this is an ad, like hashtag ad, you know, I'm yeah. not just randomly deciding to drink Orangina just for fun. They sent me a whole big box. Um, and it's interesting, like there's that aspect of it. And then Katie, I think you bring up such an excellent point about, you know, if you have a lot of followers and you already have that sort of built in audience, um, you don't you know, exposure, you don't need exposure. That's a way to sort of get stuff for free. I feel like the publishers want to say, oh, we're going to give you exposure. It's like, well, I've got exposure. I want cold, hard cash. Hang on a second. I wanted to say that that other voice that you just heard, that is Sharon Bain, frequent contributor to Book and Film Globe. Uh, it, it's apparently not, not just fellow old person. Yes. Yeah. She's not just a fellow. She's not just a fellow old person. Uh, I also wanted to remind you that you are listening to the book and Phil globe week in review podcast. We are recording it live on clubhouse, but we, uh, this will also be on Spotify and Apple podcasts and anywhere delicious podcasts are heard. Katie, um, once again, like whatever you, you know, you, your, um, reporting is really, uh, really, uh, makes book and film globe uh it's so much better and i I don't understand how you find this stuff but uh it's amazing that you do and we will have you back on the show 
Um, and this has been your first voyage on Clubhouse. How, how has it gone for you? Pretty, pretty good. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah. I'm glad. All of my you know hundreds of hours on Twitter are paying off into something. So yeah. So um, you know, I mean, this isn't book talk, but we're doing the best. <laughs> Doing the best we can, uh, and, and I wanted to, I wanted to add too that um, you know I love I do love the uh, song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, but her book Circe um, is really it, really good, even better, even better yes. I think, and that and that and I'm, 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 I'm waiting for the uh, the tragic teens to discover that because boy you want to talk about a, a sad but true love story, poor Circe, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't I can't believe that Cer- I didn't know this in the Greek myth that Circe ended up marrying Odysseus's son. Oh, I didn't know that. Spoiler alert. Here is Sharon yes. Dane. Here I am. Fe- fellow yes. old person. We are old. Fellow old person. But I just want to say I'm so glad to have young person, uh, yes. Katie, on. I love reading her stuff on the yes. site. And yes. uh, I, I always um, I'm just excited to have her voice here. Yeah. It, it, it prevents the site from becoming nothing but grouchy Gen X people <laughs> complaining. So this week you um, you reviewed a couple of books for us, uh, a couple of sort of literary thrillers. I did, uh, I did, and I mean it's really one of my favorite genres to read, yeah. both personally and professionally. So I mean I read a lot that I don't review, um, but these I felt like I wanted to I wanted to write a review because I thought there was so much that was good about them and they were aiming for the stars with these sort of bringing in more serious issues and they both fell short. So, um, the two books are, um, Jocelyn Jackson's mother, may I, and then Mm -hmm. Sally Hepworth's the good sister. And both these authors have Several books under their belt. They are New York Times bestselling authors. Good Sisters already on the New York Times bestsellers list. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Jocelyn Jackson's ends up there too. So, um, you know, they already have this established readership and they know their audience. Um, they do a good job of I'm going to build um, stories around women with complicated histories and, uh, you know, family situations. And in these two cases, a mysterious crime um, that uh, provides some twists and turns. And all that was great in both books in terms of just your basic plot lines and characterizations. What was disappointing for me as a reader was uh, in Mother May I, you know, kind of the central issue centers on this one night many moons ago when the, uh, there were some college, uh, college boys and college girl, an event gone wrong. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, now there's a, there's a revenge plot going on with, uh, a mom of three who's sort of, you know, plucky and sassy and all those things. And her baby is kidnapped, um, right under her uh, nose. Babies are always getting, babies are always getting kidnapped in books. Babies are always going to kidnap. So obviously your baby is kidnapped. You're going to do whatever the kidnapper says. And so she's got to, yeah, of course. Them, you know, swank gala and like, you know, slip, you know, roofies in somebody's drink. And, you know, mm-hmm. you just, you can see it coming from a mile away that like, that's not exactly what's going to happen. But, you know, with that book, the challenge is that, you know, I think we've read so much, particularly, you know, of, of, of late. I know, you know, we'll probably touch on later, uh, you know, the, the Philip Roth biographer. I mean, just the, the, the sort of bad um, misadventures of uh, bad behaving men. And I feel like on pages of a book like this, you uh, want, 
you, you, you want there to be true revenge, not this sort of, you know, I, I can't say too much without ruining the sort of plot right. line of the whole twist, but I just felt like it was tepid. You know, you build up to this big finish and then the finish is kind of like, Oh, yeah. well, there you go. You know? And then with, uh, with Sally Hepworth, I mean, I can't open up Twitter without seeing a tweet about this book and what a groundbreaker it is and how amazing it is. And you know, hats off to her. It's about two sisters. Um, one, um, has, you know, never really named, but it, it's clearly telegraphed that she's got a kind of a sensory processing issue. Um, you know, maybe on the autism spectrum and Sally's talked about this in interviews that that's what she was going for. And there's so many things about it. That's such a positive representation. And then she just blows it at the end. Um, the whole plot hinges on, you know, the sister with, um, some challenges being just completely targeted and manipulated. And I'm like, well, if you're trying for this positive representation, representation, why is this, why is this sister at odds? Um, you know, why is this sister the target of what's going on and, you know, not able to sort of navigate, uh, what the folks around her are doing to her. It just felt really dangerous and negative mm -hmm. to me as a reader. And I just am, I, 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 I've been looking to see if anyone else had that reaction and so far not. So maybe I'm out there on my own, but I, can, um, I cannot comment. I have not read these books. Um, these seem genre wise. And you mentioned Leanne Moriarty in terms of literary thrillers and then Jody Picoult in terms of like, um, rela you said relationship driven fiction. When I was reading this, I was, I was reminded to some extent of like the, uh, you know the the woman in the book, woman in the window, which is I'm a, right. The AJ book. That horrible. That that is a movie uh, next week coming out. We're going to review it, but uh, it's a horrible book. Or the girl on the train, or um, right. Or every, like every you know, for a while, you know, every single book um, that was a literary thriller of any type was some sort of you know, gone girl had to appear somehow in the comps, yeah. the promotion or the thread. And I, those two books you just mentioned are, are remind me of that. Um, yeah. and, and I think good literary thrillers. I mean, I think about Laura Lippman, um, yes. does a great job with this where there's a mystery, but there's incredibly well-drawn characters and she explores like wonderful themes of, you know, like racial tension or, um, you know, abuse, but in a smart way. Um, yeah. And so. she also has, she also has a strong sense of place and, you know, is knowledgeable about how the police operate. She is, she yeah. is, um, yeah. you know, she was a cops reporter for quite some yeah. time at the Baltimore exactly. set. Yeah. So, all right. Um, let's, so the, the, those, uh, those, uh, books, uh, two are, are in Sharon's re review, which I headlined two new literary thrillers work, the shallow end, uh, that appeared on book and film globe this week. Uh, once again, this is book and film globes week in review podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor in chief of book and film globe. This is, uh, also airing on Spotify and on Apple podcasts. These are things now I have to say. <laughs> so I am saying them. Um, I, I published a piece today, Sharon. I thought we, we, we could, we could uh, kibitz about this real briefly. Before I we, read it. I read it. Yeah. So my piece today that I published was called American Publishing in Censorship Mode. And I tried to tie together the um, – there was a, a recent uh, letter that um, – junior employees of uh, Simon and Schuster sent out, they tried to get Jonathan Karp, who was one of book and film globes, publishing power 30, a list that you put together. Um, 
Which you should absolutely read if you have yeah. not yet already. Yes, yes. But uh, Jonathan Karp, uh, you know, basically uh, shot down the um, the staffer's uh, attempt to um, cancel the scheduled memoir from former Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, he says, as a publisher in this polarized era, we have experienced outrage from both sides of the political divide and from different constituencies and groups. But we come to work each day to publish, not cancel which is the most extreme decision a publisher can make and one that runs counter to the very core of our mission to publish a diversity of voices and perspectives. Now, I read that and I was like, my hero, at last someone has said this uh, because I feel like there's been a slew of literary cancellations in the last year for various reasons, both on sort of small, you know, there's been a lot of sort of small scale young adult novel cancellations because of problems of representation. We've written about that. Dave Pilkey, we talked about that. He's the author of the Captain Underpants series, um, pulled one of his books because of uh, negative racial depictions. Um, you know, the Dr. Seuss uh, estate pulling books from circulation. Again, these are all different circumstances, but, but you know, the, um, the common thread is that books no longer are being published. And so, uh, you know, and I also talk about in this piece about how W.W. Um, Norton and company pulled an 880-page authorized biography of Philip Roth completely from circulation. You know, that's the major biography of, of an, you know, I mean, whether you like Philip Roth or not, he's an important American author, um, doesn't exist anymore because Blake Bailey, the biographer, um, has been accused of multiple uh, incidents of sexual misconduct and even sexual assault. I mean, I obviously, I'm not going to condone that. And sounds like, you know, if all this stuff is true, he's like a Harvey Weinstein-like figure. Why pull his book? What does that have to do with it? Right. I, I mean, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, because I feel like the traditional argument we see from the folks who would write these letters and who would applaud the pulling of uh, the Roth biography because of Blake Bailey's mis, uh, misdeeds or alleged misdeeds yeah. um, uh, would be that, you know, as a private company, we are not going to support this person, whether it's Blake Bailey or Mike Pence, making yeah. money off of their misdeeds, whether that's, you know, criminal or just hitched your political wagon to a questionable Mike- star. Yeah, but Mike Pence's yeah, Mike Pence's misdeed is that he was Trump's vice president. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, to some people that's an extreme misdeed. To other people, you know, that it's not. And I mean, I, I mean, here's the thing: a publisher is um, free to not give someone a book deal. They're free to not publish a book. Um, but I feel like once the book is out there, it's like. You're going to pull it from circulation. You're going to, that, that is censorship. I mean, you know, obviously like, you know, I feel like it's two different, right. It's two different things. I feel like the Blake Bailey thing is different because that book is out versus, I mean, Jonathan Karp, I mean, they've got a contract, but I mean, you know, it it is, the the book does not exist at this time. They could say, you know what? I am not going to read. I don't want to read my Pence's book. Like, I'm not interested in him, in what he has to say. He's not a, some kind of lodestar for me. But I, my, my argument is that it, it stems from the same impulse, um, that unpleasant people we consider unpleasant shouldn't have a voice, you know? Um, and, and, I mean, I understand that Blake Bailey is being um, accused of 
you know, legitimate misdeeds, but that book is out, you know, let it stay out. I don't want Simon & Schuster to, I, I feel like Mike Pence can shop that elsewhere. You know, I mean, if I worked at Simon & Schuster, I'll be real honest. I'm like, ugh, like I do not want to be, um, I, I, I don't want to, you know, support financially Mike Pence benefiting off of what I consider his profound poor choices. I'm not preventing him from getting it out you yeah. know, elsewhere, but I mean, it, it, that, that, I mean, I really struggle with that Philip Roth biography poll because I mean, I think this Blake Bailey guys is bad. Right. And sure. I don't want him to, you know, make money, but I mean, I'm like, well, you know, Gosh, I mean, I, I feel like that's that's a harder call for me. And I mean, I'm I'm the first one. I, I feel like these conversations need, and not, of course, our conversation is happening at exactly the right time, but these conversations in the industry, they are happening so late in the game. It's sort of like, well, we've already made the deal. Well, we've already made our decision, essentially, to, um, you know, give this person a platform to, you know, possibly pull back the curtain on what may or may not have happened, you know, here, there, and everywhere. Um, I just I just feel like, you know, in the case of Mike Pence, you know, he was, even if what, even, if, I mean, his, the book, that book is going to be boring and probably full of lies and, 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 and questionable ideology, et cetera, et cetera. But he was still the vice president during the weirdest uh, administration in American history. And I feel like, that book has value, and I, you know, just because a junior employee is triggered and thinks he's a white supremacist, I just don't feel like that's a reason to pull it. And yeah, it, but I mean, you're you're characterizing that as like you know, ten, twenty year olds like wrote this letter. I mean, there were a lot. I mean, two hundred people plus other. I, I, yeah, I mean, to me, the question is now, okay, clearly Simon and Schuster decided. You know, and, and I mean, they're, you know, I mean, Dana Kennedy is like at, you know, Simon and Schuster and I mean, she clearly like signed off on this too. I mean, she's, you know, right under carp, um, thought that, you know, that this Mike Pence biography was, you know, the, it was a great business decision maybe, yeah. but it's that question of where as a, where as a company do we stand? moment. Um, Dan Friedman, you have something to say? Uh, our, our Dan Friedman, who's a, a new contributor to uh, Book and Film Globe, uh, former executive editor of the Jewish Daily Forward. Um, uh, Dan, you had a comment here. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it was really interesting listening to this conversation after the conversation with Katie before about Bookstagram, because it feels like the 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 borders that a lot of people grew up between producers and promoters, between publishers and politics, they're being re revalued and reviewed. And so like, I don't want to like just say this was a bunch of 20-year-olds. I just think that the, the rules between who you trust and why you trust and transparency... So for the bookstagram, like, they're promoters, and they want to be paid for promotion in a sort of a hybrid way for, um, you know, they're both people who care and, and want to review things, but also they're advertisers at the same time, which is a weird thing for us who grew up with, you know, your, your crystal clear in, reviewers of integrity on the one hand and then the ad pages on another hand. And I think that what the, the people who are 
signing the petition with Simon and Schuster without knowing any of them in particular, are saying that we don't want to be involved in a collaborative you know, regime that, that, that puts out white supremacy into the world. And, and I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think it's a very different way of viewing that from I go and work in a factory and I don't really care what the widgets are that they put out. And I think there's a lot of different places in the creative economy and, and the rest of the economy that is trying to revalue and re review how, how everything um, is aligned. I just happen to fall on the side of extreme freedom of speech, and I, I just feel like it's I, – I, it, to me, it's a bad impulse. That's all I'm saying. It's a bad impulse, and – it's all good until um, it's all good until somebody loses an eye. You know what I mean? Like until somebody <laughs> you don't like or somebody you like gets canceled for a bad reason, and then suddenly you're like, "Well, maybe I should have said something sooner." But yeah, but I like, I like what Dan was. I like what Dan was saying in terms of things are evolving, right? I mean, as we've we've established early on, we, like we're oldsters, right? So we've got this, you know, the way things were done and way back in, you know, the nineties. And th I think things are evolving. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Sure. That's, that's a good way to, that's a good way to think about it. But again, you know, I put, I, I put this example in the article and then we're going to move on. You know, what if this had been Kamala Harris's, uh, autobiography after she is no longer vice president and the publishing industry were, were run not by, um, you know, woke 20 somethings, but by conservatives. And they decided that, uh, she, um, she is too woke and that she, uh, promotes critical race theory or whatever the things conservatives complain about this these days. And then they signed a petition and they tried to get the book removed. I'm just saying that it could have, you know, there, but for the grace of God go we, and we need to be careful about that. Now I'm going to bring Dan back. Um, to talk about a book that has not been canceled, that has been published, uh, and uh, from a non-problematic author, uh, Andy Weir, author of *The Martian*, has a new novel this week called *Project Hail Mary*. Yeah, so I think what's interesting about Andy Weir, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the, his new novel in a second, um, uh, is that he started off being self-published. That he mm. was, um, uh, um, you know, so the Martian was originally, you know, uh, you know, he, I don't think he was a bookstagrammer, but and but he was someone who was writing for himself, and yeah. so he, you know, he's he's a beneficiary of the blurring of the lines. You can write for yourself and then find that's really popular by the people that you like, and then and, and then get picked up, and then you know, and his uh, one of the things that I point out in the review is that his style is terrible. Like he writes, you know. Like an enthusiastic, um, you know, uh, I don't know, an enthusiastic amateur, which is what he was. Uh, but the enthusiasm uh, and the actual, the way that he progresses it, which is to say, here's a problem that we need to solve, and it's really important. That we right. He's not. He's not Kim Stan. You know, he's not. All right. He's he's not a great writer. Like, and he's not. You know. Kim Stanley Robinson or uh, Neil Stevenson, you know, other, like you know, current sci contemporary sci-fi writers or um, uh, Jemison, um, who, who you know, contemporary sci-fi uh, sci writers who are you know li literary artists. Let's say, you know, yeah, but, Andy yeah, Weir. 
He's but, not. A, he's not a literary artist, but also like you know, a lot of these people really care about plot, and and um, and he doesn't really care about plot in so much as like like there's a problem to be solved. It's not like we need to deal with this person's uh, feelings or we need to develop this character. Like these things do not bother Andy Weir. And, and one of the reasons that we're talking, I'm talking a little bit generally about this, is because this new novel, Project Hail Mary, has everything at stake, but the protagonist starts off not knowing anything about who he is. We know it's a, a him, uh, or we find out very early on that, that, that it's a him like on the first page, uh, but very little else. So everything that we say now could be a spoiler, and that which was a particular um, interesting obstacle or challenge for a reviewer. Yeah, so let's not spoil anything other than it appears that this unnamed protagonist, or I guess his name is Grace, yeah. um, it, I is decided, uh, float. I decided to spoil appears, that that was that was an acceptable amount of spoiling. Yeah, that, it, it appears, although we're not going to say, it appears from the cover that he's floating in space um, and that he's trying to prevent some kind of interstellar calamity from happening, or I don't know, or trying to like prevent a sunspot. I don't know. It doesn't matter, and let's not say anything. But you, I mean, you, you definitely like. You know, I, I gathered from your review that you, uh, I mean, this book's going to be obviously a massive bestseller. You know, The Martian was hugely popular. And then he wrote a moon book that was also quite popular. Yeah, so he wrote Artemis, which was quite popular. And he, I think what he tried to do was try to deviate. You know, it was the problem second book syndrome, which was like, well, I, that works, but I can't just do the same again. So I'll try something different. And he, so he wrote from, uh, he, he had a female protagonist and, and she got into some trouble. She was naughtier. Like, but he, he was trying to do this a slightly different thing with some of the same tools and it, it just didn't work as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so he had a lot of rebound from the Martian, but, but, um, not quite as much. Whereas this goes goes back to a lot of the Martian um, uh, tropes, uh, and I think yeah. it really works works super well. Like I would definitely anyone who liked the Martian will like this, and they've had you know four years to uh, <laughs> to cleanse their palate, or at least a couple since Artemis. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like uh, sec- he had second novel syndrome, and he's recovered from that. Um, and this, I, I don't know. And again, I'm gonna, um, I'm just, you don't want any spoilers. But this also looks like it's got a little bit of, a little bit of gravity. You know, the film Gravity that seems to be an influence here. Maybe, possibly, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's, there's a, a little bit of, of, of that. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think, like, without spoiling it, what can I say about it? Like, he's, he's, um, you know, he's. There's quite a lot of isolation involved in it, and, and as, as you point out on the cover, like, there's a lot of floating around in space looking at uh, interesting things. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but remember that, that everything, the future of everything is at stake in every yeah. small engineering problem that needs to be solved in the next um, very clearly specified amount of time. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds very nerdy and easily adaptable into a film. Exactly, so. coming to coming to uh, coming to an HBO Max desktop near you sometime uh, in uh, 2023, I imagine. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna see it on the big screen because that's what I do. I go to the movies, come hell or high water, no matter what what uh, plague is in the air. Dan, thank you so so much. Uh, we'll see you back here sometime when you write for us again. Great, um, looking forward to it. Thanks, Dale. Um, move along 
long uh, the way we structure I mean this, we talk about books for like 40 minutes yeah, that seems like a long time and it is but uh, uh, we're structuring this you know books are our appetizer then the entree is film and then for dessert we're going to talk about TV and it's film time at last time to talk about film Stephen Garrett uh, step up to step up to the Bima for your for your Haftora for your, uh, your Aliyah <laughs> it's time <laughs> it's, it's so uh, hello Stephen hello. Garrett um, uh, chief film critic for book and film globe has been reviewing films since the 1930s. Uh, <laughs> you were used to work with, uh, with AG with it, right. And with, uh, Back when they were pictures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this week you watch Netflix, mm-hmm. um, the Mitchells versus the machines, a car, a, a, an animated film. Yes. Uh, you seem to, you seem to find it pretty entertaining. It was, Totally entertaining. It was totally fine. I let me let me put it this way: it's not. It wasn't totally fine. There were some very very funny moments in a very very obvious and basic story. So, you know, it, it averages out to being in somewhere in the middle and being solid. But you know, um, I laughed as much as I groaned. Um, but there's a lot of talent on the screen, and there are a lot of. I feel like the producers are Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, the guys who made <clears throat> the Lego movie. They won the Oscar for Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Uh, you know, they made 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street. They're very funny guys. They know how to do live action and animation. Um, and they, it, you know, as producers, I'm assuming they kind of godfathered this. I don't know how light or heavy a hand they had in the creation of the story, but there's so many funny jokes in the almost like doodles in the margin um, that they have. And that seems to be kind of a house style for them and the movies that they've been involved in. Um, the guy who directed this, I, I'm burying the lead. The Mitchell's versus the machines is a movie about the robot apocalypse and yes. this uh, totally dysfunctional family who against all odds kind of stumbles their way into saving the world. Right. Very, very obviously a cartoon. <laughs> it's a cartoon. It would be a cartoon even if it were live action. It's a very cartoonish depiction of the robot apocalypse. Yeah. Unlike iRobot or other or, very highly realistic depictions. Yeah, highly real, like The Matrix, very highly realistic, or Terminator. Yeah. Um, yeah, that yeah. makes no attempt right. to even try to be remotely realistic, which is fine because yeah. it's, its point is not that, you know, and it's playing for laughs and it is hilarious. Um, but it is. And there's, there's, a wa- there's, there's a wacky pug. There's a wacky pool. Well, it's Doug the Pug, who apparently my daughter tells me is a big internet sensation because people ah. like to pose with his dumb dog, who literally does uh, the voice recording for the animated version of the pug in the film. That's how, that's how like, attention to detail these guys are. Mm-hmm. Sticklers. Let's get the real yeah, Doug the Pug I, to snort and growl. Yeah, I'm sure the book talkers are familiar with Doug the Pug. Um, I uh, and also, also, there's a, a, a the, the most popular scene from this movie, and I know this is really in depth criticism of film. Is there's a giant Furby attack? There is. There is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's that's sort of the uh, that's the that's the that's the money shot. <laughs> it, so it, and, and it's pretty funny. And I say this in the review, like. They have this eerie sing-song voice, and yet they're subtitled to say these bizarrely Baroque, weird, uh, archaic sorts of biblical uh, pronouncements like, let the dark harvest begin, which yeah. is just hilarious on the face of it. I mean, I don't know. It, it's a silly, dumb movie that's very obvious, but also really funny. Yeah, and, and, hugely, and hugely popular on Netflix. I is add. it? It's the number, I, I, yeah, well-deserved. 
Yeah, the number one, number one uh, content on, on Netflix, at least yesterday when I looked. So, um, and, and, and sorry, I do need to give credit where credit's due. Mike Rianda is the director and co-writer, and I knew nothing about him, um, but apparently he had a Disney show that called Gravity Falls, which had a lot of talented wow. people involved, went for right. a couple seasons. So I'm, I, I'm now tempted to kind of check that out because this guy clearly is talented. Yeah, is that on Disney Plus, the Gravity Falls? Probably. I would imagine, yeah, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So uh, I, I wanted to uh, chat with you real briefly. I, I went to the movies last night. I haven't published this review yet, but I saw uh, the new uh, Jason Statham movie. God help me. Uh, it was called, it was called Wrath of Man. Wrath of Man, directed by Guy Ritchie. And, not Wrath uh, of Khan. Not Wrath of Khan. And uh, Jason Statham played a man, and he had he was very wrathful. Um, <laughs> Terrible, terrible film, really. Like, just so grim, you know. And he, it, it takes place largely inside the the world of um, high end, um, like Brinks truck drivers, who are these like high. But, but in this movie, they're like this incredibly macho, highly militarized force of like security guards, and um, there are all kinds of, of, of machinations and a lot of gunplay. And there's just a, it, 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 it takes place in Los Angeles, and apparently, like. You know, there are violent robberies. I feel like if there were this many, like, violent, well-planned robberies of armored trucks going on, I feel like we would hear about this if it was, like, a, a real phenomenon. You know, yeah. just something that actually happened all the time. Um, and, you know, it's like Jason's – whatever, I'm going to give it away. He's like a criminal underlord, overlord, underlord, underworld boss um, who um, suffers a tragic loss and then takes revenge – um, but there's, there's also all these mixed up timelines, like it goes forward three weeks and then back three months and then forward five months until you find out who's doing what. And it's just, and then there's this grim overbearing score and, you know, Guy Ritchie movies are kind of intolerable anyway, but what even makes them remotely, <laughs> what makes them even remotely watchable is, you know, the little bit of cheek, right? Yeah. Like the, just, it's like, very cheeky. Like the gentleman that was out uh, fairly recently, you know, I didn't love it because there was a, too much Charlie Hunnam in it. But um, and I can't stand Charlie Hunnam. But uh, you know, it had some, and there was it was very racist against Chinese people. But it does, it did have like some some humor, you know. There's a funny Hugh yeah. Grant performance. Yeah, yeah. This movie is just like a it was just a bludgeon. I mean, it was just one of those movies where and there's a lot of it's a lot of violence. Uh, a couple of good action sequences, but you know, and, and it's like a Jason Statham movie, and then he's off screen for like half an hour, forty five minutes, while you're getting oh. these other character backstories. And no, you need, you need Jason Statham. That sounds like information I need because I was like, it's a Statham movie, but if he's not going to be in it, no. for forty five minutes. Yeah, Sharon, yeah. Sharon, Sharon Bain pops in um, with with that comment, and you're like, you know, it's like that the, was that movie where he like he always has to electrocute himself to get the power. I love right. that movie. What is that right, called? Right. Jolt, Volt, something like Jolt, that. Something like High that. High voltage. So, some... I, I like the transport. Sure. Jason Statham, which that could be the title of this movie, apparently, too. It's called Crank, though, like... by the way. Oh, there you go, Crank. Now, hang on a second. Uh, Ke Ke Kevin Jones, who, who is going to uh, pop up soon, uh, says that that movie is called Crank. So yes. thank you. Thank, thank you, Kevin, uh, for oh, that. Yes. Hey, can I ask but, a quick question? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Do you think uh, Guy Ritchie should have stopped after Snatch? Because I went back to that to the to the first two, and they still hold up. There's there's you know, there there's definitely obvious flaws, but 
you know, they're still, as far as, like, a story goes, they're still really fun. I mean, I'd rather see uh, Snatch Guy Ritchie than Aladdin Guy Ritchie. You know, I, he kind of feels like one of those guys that got a lot of heat at the beginning of his career because he was lively and inventive and irreverent and then settled into this kind of paunchy middle age where he makes studio movies and, you know, like the Sherlock movies were fine, whatever. You know, and he has a sort of cheeky sort of irreverence, but it's pretty, it's pretty tired. Yeah. Wrath of Man is is really gripping, you know, and, and they have it has a there are some it has a decent cast like Holt McElhaney is in it. He's the, the sort of the um, second lead in um, Mindhunter, the, the serial killer show on Netflix, and he you know he, he really can hold the screen. But um, but Statham, you know, it's like like I said, you, like like in Crank, you need him like like really yeah. going going balls out, you know, and um, and you just need Statham. I, it sounds alright. There's like, not enough. There's a lot of love in this podcast right now for Jason Statham. It sounds like everybody or a lot of people who've spoken up have at least seen a few Jason Statham and find him absolutely enjoyable. Did you watch The Gentleman? Oh, it sounds like you did. Yeah, I, I saw The Gentleman. Did you yeah, it, did you review it? I followed yeah, I reviewed. I reviewed The Gentleman, and it was better than this. But again, like my main problem with The Gentleman was that all the bad guys were Asian. I mean, they made they, 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 some of the guy's last name was Fook. You like it was like a Chinese, uh, not Chinese Thai. He was Thai, and it was or, or Vietnamese. I don't remember. It was Fook, and they kept saying, you know, of course, you know, they kept saying fuck, and it was supposedly hilarious, and it yeah, that you know, wasn't. So. Alright, so, uh, so, so there we go. Uh, so you can see the Mitchells versus the Machines. Do not see, uh, Wrath of Man. Um, Sarah, are you, are you in a, in a zone? Are you at a truck stop somewhere we can hear you? I'm back! I'm in a zone! Yes, yeah, I'm arriving s- at my house right now, actually, oh. so we're good. Oh, you sound good. You sound good. Yeah. So tell, all right. Okay. So tell us. So tell us about the this movie, the columnist, which, like, like I said, you could re- really relate to um, in some ways because as a uh, female writer who's on the internet, you receive lots of terrible uh, comments, including for some stuff you've written for us. Yes, yes, it's it's true. Uh, basically, for the past. I don't know. Yeah. For many years now, I have been receiving a lot of, uh, you know, ever since I started writing uh, as a critic, I guess, ever since I started really expressing my opinion online and there had being a two-way street, I started getting uh, some serious hate mail along with, you know, a smattering of love mail. But uh, people are more inclined to write to you when they have some shit to say than when they just want to compliment you so uh so yes this this did the premise of this really spoke to me because it wasn't something that i had seen addressed before in kind of a horror comedy format i i enjoy a good uh revenge flick and uh you know a feminist revenge flick uh especially and i hadn't really seen this topic particularly and uh somebody correct me if i'm wrong maybe it's been in a tv show or something but i had never seen it before so i was excited the columnist is a as a dutch movie um and uh basically the premise is is that a single mom uh has an opinion she, she as you put it has a, built a successful career as an opinion essayist um and she's a lot of yogurt she's a, she's a dutch after all she probably rides a bike too i'm guessing Oh, everywhere, yeah, it's yeah. right. Yeah, so uh, you know, you know, obviously the Dutch, the, the the Dutch way of life is uh, is appealing in many ways, but she still gets the trolls, uh, and yeah. then she decides, sort of, a la, and you point out that she this this actor, this actress, Katja Herbers, looks a lot like Terry Mulligan. 
She does. Yeah, she's got right down to the the bangs, you know, and the kind of baby fat on the cheeks. And and it's got this kind of similar uh, aesthetic at the outset. It's kind of got a a bit of a candy-colored environment around her, and you see her staring at her screen, kind of gnawing on her fingernail, you know, absorbing this this hate uh, on the screen. And, and, uh, so, uh, of, course, of course, we're referring to uh, Carrie Mulligan in, in Promising Young Woman, um, yes. you know, which which uh, which just won the Oscar for, for best screenplay. But this this uh, the columnist is not going to win the Oscar for best screenplay, is what your no, review is saying. Sadly, no. And and I you know I would have been content if this had just settled into being a campy B movie, even if it hadn't been a great movie. If it had really leaned into letting her just. Uh, kind of letting the blood fly you yeah. know she she takes a she has a sack of gardening tools that she starts carrying around to her her victims uh houses which is the first real implausibility here i mean the the idea that you could actually go on twitter and figure out where who the actual people are who are trolling you uh, you know who they are and where they live and and that they might live in your your city or down the street from you uh, is you know ridiculous, but I'm, and, then, and then you beat them to death with a gardening hoe. Yeah, or you know, or you chop them up, or uh, yeah, you push of them course. off the roof in one case, um, and and then she starts, uh, you know, not to. I don't think anyone here is probably going to see this. She she starts taking metal fingers as trophies mm. uh, and and storing them in her freezer. All of which I'm totally fine with. That's a, that's a fine B movie. It's pretty funny. And the, you know, the gore is handled, uh, in such a way that it's, it's more kind of amusing than it is horrifying, which is, is also what I prefer in a horror movie. Uh, but, but it's a, it's, it's what it does with her actions that I, I felt was tedious, which was ultimately, uh, she has this daughter who's kind of a free speech crusader. And, and what it does is it ends up kind of juxtaposing what her daughter is. Her daughter is fighting for free speech for political prisoners in other countries. And it kind of juxtaposes what this columnist is doing with what her daughter is fighting for in a way that suggests that, um, you know, in any way, uh, and I guess maybe this ties to our early discussion about books, it suggests that in any way silencing people who want to say horrible things about you is, is you know, silencing uh, someone's right to say whatever they want. Uh, and you just didn't feel you just didn't feel like it. it, it that was a con, uh, a persuasive. Um, well, I'm curious what you you know, Neil. You you're you're a you know staunch defender of uh, you know letting everyone publish, which yes. I, I'm pretty sure I agree with, except maybe in certain cases, uh, you know, of extreme uh-huh. hate speech. But I mean, sure. do you it, think there I mean, should be? It's got to be pretty extreme. Do you think it should be what? You know, Do I think there should be what? Well, so, you know, there's one one troll in particular who writes to this columnist that uh, she should be uh, skewered seaward first on a pole, for mm. example, is one of the more colorful things. And, uh, you know, to suggest that that, that, that uh, taking away that person's right to say that is mm. equivalent with, you know, canceling someone's book deal or well, someone in no. jail. It's not, and all you got to do there is just not allow the comments. Right, right. 
Which is what everyone keeps saying throughout the movie is don't read the comments, don't read the comments. Or don't even read, don't read the comments or just, or just don't, um, don't have just them. disable the, just, just, just uh, from your platform, just disable the comments. I mean, you know, and people have the right to say whatever they want, but you don't have to give them the platform. So that's and, true. But uh, as any yeah. female writer will tell you, any female writer who's been yeah. on Twitter and as my bio will tell you, I have not been on Twitter for yeah. several years and this is part of the reason why, uh, it is, it is really unavoidable to get that kind yeah. of misogynist uh, toxicity spewed at you, and it really does wear you down. I mean, I have not asked yeah. anyone, thankfully, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it does wear on you, and so I yeah. thought this would be a really fun, cathartic uh, way to kind of, you know, blow some steam about that, and it wasn't uh, really. But the yeah. first half of it, I'll give a thumbs up to. Uh, and we're, all right, so where can, where can we find the columnist? Is it, it's, I think it's in theaters, some theaters. I, I, I think it is in I some live. theaters. Yeah, maybe a, maybe yeah. an art house theater here and there. And, and I imagine yeah. it's probably uh, on demand as well, I, but, although I could not yeah. hand tell you uh, which yeah. platform it's on. Is, is back uh, for for another another go round here. He appears to be you. you uh, hello, Lily. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you? you Lily is Lily is a, uh, a a writer, educator, podcaster herself, um, and uh, increasingly frequent contributor to Book and Film Globe. You appear to be someplace where there are birds chirping today. Yes, there are. And other noises. I'm glad you're only hearing the birds. Why, why do birds suddenly appear every time you are here? <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. I asked that. Uh, anyway, but you, so, so now I don't, I'm not trying to type you here, Lily. You put I a, bunch of stuff for, a bunch of stuff for us. But I, one, the last time you were on, you talked about a, a bad Iranian-American novel. And this week, you're here to talk about a bad Iranian-American sitcom. That's uh, right. Chat. A, a TV show called Chad, which sounds horrible. I have not I admit it. I have not seen it. I, now, although I did see the trailer for it, and I was like, "What the hell is this?" So maybe you can tell us what, what is what is this Chad thing? Well, my reaction to the trailer was the same as yours, which is, "What the hell is this?" And yeah. as I said in my write-up for you in my essay, uh, it's hor- it's horrifyingly an Iranian-American sitcom. Um, and, you know, Iranians have been here for many, many years. There's a huge population in, all across the United States. And there's just not even a character on TV other than Shahs of Sunset, of course. But no characters on TV that represent Iranians. The very, very, very few that have shown up have not been positive characters in any way. Um, yeah. I should point out that Yara Shahidi, who is from Blackish and Gronish, she is half Iranian. But she... Okay certainly doesn't present herself as Iranian in any way, so I don't want to discount her because she's amazing and I'm a huge fan of hers, but... Um, but that's not Chad. That's not Chad. No, Chad is yeah. a really bad decision on so many levels from Nassim Pedrad, who I think most people know her from Saturday Night Live. She's a super talented actress and comedian and great writer, and she has so many amazing... In qualities, as well as having a degree in all this stuff, and you know her work speaks for itself. And then she totally ruined it with Chad. Chad, and it's just like, Chad now in Chad, 
Nassim Pedrod, uh, who you referred to, uh, she's 39 years old uh, mm-hmm. in her real life, but here she plays and a woman, and here she plays a 14-year-old Iranian-American boy named Chad, or maybe it's Chad Short for something, or is his name actually? No, he, you know, typical Iranian story, you don't see your name on one of those pre-made license plate names, so uh-huh. you pick a name from there and you decide his name is Chad. Uh-huh. I won't get into the fact right, so that that's... his real name is far-fetched anyway, because nobody would name their child what his real name is in the current Time. What it's is, a very what is old it? name. It's Feridun, Feridun, who's, which is also my uncle's name, and my uncle is close to 90, so you, it's just not a current name. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. Right. It's a great okay. name, but it's not right. current. Right. All right. So, um, all right. So, so Chad is, is and, and, and uh, she, pl- and she plays him with this horrible page boy haircut, mm-hmm. um, and wearing these, these terrible clothes. Mm-hmm. Which is all on purpose. I mean, you know, it's part of the, his kind of uh, geeky character. It reminds me of, like, a terrible version of Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty much flawless. And I'm there going, yeah. okay, so you're trying to do a very, very bad version of Freaks and Geeks. And there's the thing that bugs me. Well, there's so many things that bug me. But one of the main things that bug me is that I don't see any Iranian Americanness anywhere in the show. Like this could yeah. be any teenager who is a dork and who wants to fit in and who is awkward and who is making you cringe, which is what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a cringe comedy, but it could be anyone. There's nothing specifically culturally Iranian or Iranian American about it. If anything, it's like super generic. And that part bothers me because Iranian culture is very strong. And no matter how long you live here, it's still part of who you are and part of how your household is run and part of how your kids grow up. And and it's just not represented here at all. Yeah, I like. I mean, I'd like to see that. Uh, I would watch that on a show. You know, I'm always interested in uh, how other you know cultural households work. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about um, a wonderful uh, Canadian sitcom, Kim's Convenience. Kim's Convenience. Yeah. You know, I was just going to use like, that. Yeah. You know, I'm like, you watch that, and you're like, oh, these Korean people are hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's very. Spe- a lot of the references are very specific and so well written and so well done. Um, and yeah, that's like the model of how to do one of these modern shows. Yeah, I agree, and that's actually the one that I was thinking of saying we need like the Iranian American Kim's convenience because I mean yes. I'm not I'm not horribly familiar with Korean culture, but it feel it feels specific. It doesn't feel yeah. generic at all. No, I mean, from my experience, and I, I, I'm strangely more familiar with Korean culture because I, <laughs> I, I, I was, I, I had many Korean friends when I lived in Chicago, and, and I certainly lived in in LA. You can't really avoid Korean culture. I mean, mm-hmm. unless you want to, but I, I didn't want to. Um, and uh, yeah, everything was just was like spot on the money. Uh, and you know, I, and I just, I really, uh, I love that show. And I, you know, it's frustrating because I feel like, you know. There's probably some similar comedy to be drawn from Iranian uh, culture. In fact, Kim's Convenience, what they do so well, too, is they also, they also bring in other ethnicities. There's, like, a funny Indian characters. There's fun, there, are, there's a funny Chinese, there are funny Chinese characters. It's a sort of multicultural soup, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's so good. It does it yeah. so well. Well, um, according to what I'm looking, um, Rotten Tomatoes has a 12% average audience score. 
So That's really bad. the viewers are rapidly deteriorating with each episode, yeah. so hopefully it won't get renewed. Yeah. Well, um, talk, hope, and hopefully the next thing you write about for us uh, will be better. Although, although it won't. You know, I, I'm already writing it, and it's already not. Oh, that's. I mean, I, I, that's, I'm sorry for you. Although I will say, you know, I do. Lo- I did love your review of Chad. It was quite funny. So, you know, it's like it's always it's always more fun in some ways to write about things that you don't like. So, Lily, yeah, thank, thank you. you. For, th- thank you for stopping. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Um, and we're going to move along. And one reminder: you're listening to the Book and Film Globe Weekend Review. Uh, Recording live on Clubhouse, soon to be aired on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're just going and going this week. We have so much content. But Kevin Jones, you did chime in a little earlier. Because your your byline for us is Kevin L. Jones, but I don't yeah. know if you need, to, you need to get that specific. Oh yeah. Well, it's 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 all about. There's so many Kevin Joneses. It's not even funny. There's yeah. Kevin Joneses writers. There's Kevin Jones podcasters. There's just. I remember when uh, the internet, you know, was kind of first taking shape, and there was a website just called KevinJones.com, and just people went on to comment, "Hey, I'm Kevin Jones too." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you are you are the only Kevin. Jones, who writes for uh, Book and Film Globe, and you've been writing for us for on, on and off for quite a long time. And and this week you uh, you pop in, and you know it's funny. Like I've had I had this piece sitting on my desktop from you wrote about it like last summer. It's been sitting there and sitting there. And then I was like, wait, a, you wrote about the dark side of the ring, which is Vice Magazine's documentary show about uh, the world of professional wrestling. And then I. I, I kept it. I, just, I didn't publish it. I didn't publish it. And then I watched an episode of the show, and I'm like, "Holy crap! This thing is great." <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, did you watch the Confidential season too? I just was watching that, and it's, it's no, really no. I've only seen a few episodes. I don't really like professional wrestling, so I can't. I can't like. I can't invest a lot of time in it. But I mean, they're really well made documentaries. It's like, like you said, it's like behind the music or thirty by thirty by thirty. Um, but it's all about wrestling, and I actually, and I saw, and a new season debuted this week. Uh, it's on Vice TV. I have a question for you, though. Why in the documentary do all the people talk like this? Why are they always like they were in love and they were wrestling and they were in love with wrestling and they, they did a lot of cocaine and then they were loved their cocaine and they loved their wrestling. They couldn't stop loving the wrestling and the cocaine and then they were dead. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of throat uh, throat injuries in wrestling. Uh-huh. You know, there's a lot of yeah. choke slams and stuff like that. But that's yeah. also too that's that that great interview style. You know, I'm gonna kill you if you see me in a dark alley. You better watch out. You know, it's just a very dramatic way to to uh, do um, uh, 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 an interview like that. <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of crazy stories. Of just, I mean, there's so much murder, <laughs> so, much, <laughs> so much murder in this show. I mean, it's like it's like murder and drugs and violence and and more oh. drugs and and, uh, and obsessive love. Well, it's such a weird, you know, it's it's re- professional wrestling because I too am not the biggest fan, but I appreciate it. And I do consider it a sport, even though the narrative is a much more uh, important aspect of it than it is for other sports. Um, but, you know, that's one thing, too, that, that professional sports don't want to talk about, you know, that there's actually narratives going on. But they just seem, or I mean, they are probably more. 
more real. Like in, in hockey, you know, what was the, the game between the Rangers and I forgot the other. But like instantly, you know, uh, once that puck dropped, he had three fights happen all at once. And it was all because of a previous game, uh, somebody right. got hit really hard, you know, and, and, and was, was hospitalized. So there's, there's these same narratives going on in sports too, but just because wrestling focuses more on that, it doesn't get the respect. So, mm-hmm. you know, the people that want to do wrestling uh, are really dedicated and, 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 and really kind of, you know, to, to think about the, the pain you have to go through, especially, you know, what's really so much more popular than just kind of your regular Hulk Hogan, like, you know, getting the crowd riled up is the extreme wrestling, you know, yeah. uh, you had that <clears throat> in, in the, in the late nineties when, uh, uh, my friends were kind of getting back into it. You not only had the attitude era, which was like these big characters, uh, uh, you know, like uh, like Triple H and everyone else. Like, you know, oh, oh, oh who are the – I forgot the tag team. I think they were called Generation X. But, you know, we're doing the X sign, which was like putting an X over – like taking their arms and crossing it over their crotch, you know. <laughs> like yeah. you had these big characters like that. But then at the same time, too, you had ECW and you had uh, people like New Jack making a, 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 big, uh, a big splash because he was willing to get real bloody and really hurt people with knives and bats covered in <laughs> barbed wire and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and that's all in the show, uh, all, all that stuff. But I think I feel like the show focuses more on the bizarre personal lives of these men and women. You know, there's uh, the, well, the two I've watched. I watched, I watched the, uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth saga. Okay. Terrible, terrible saga of of, yeah. of, of, of death and obsessive love. And then I watched the two parter about Chris Benoit and, and his, yeah. Yeah, you, you watch know? the, like, unfun episodes. Okay. <laughs> you watch the bummer ones. <laughs> yeah. So there, are, so there are episodes that are more, like, a l- little more lighthearted, maybe? Oh, uh, well, a lot, yeah, or at least a lot more, like, kooky kind of crazy. There's also kind of more true crime stuff. The Bruiser Brody story, I mean, that should be an Alex Gibney documentary. I mean, that uh-huh. is really a ter- where it's basically um, some people in Puerto Rico killed a famous wrestler and a famous American wrestler and completely got away with it because yeah. it happened in Puerto Rico and they I, I mean, it was very clear that the pro, um, prosecution wasn't allowed to do its job. Um, so there's there's true crime stuff, but then yeah, and then of course you have the Abrams story, the UWF, which the guy you know is more about kind of this fun, exciting figure who became very tragic, you know. He was a guy that was like, I'm going to fucking take on Vance McMahon, start my own wrestling league, you know, and I'll show them and I'll get the, you know, because I love wrestling and I gathered all the greatest wrestlers of all time to come back to the ring. Uh, But then he also just loved cocaine and prostitutes way too much and just kind of, because he partied so hard, basically the, the whole thing fell apart, even though there was a lot of potential there. He loved hookers and he loved wrestling. <laughs> yeah, loved yeah. Oh, oh. The Good best one. part was he, he he died what he do he died what doing what he loved prostitutes and cocaine. <laughs> so you know, there's always like, and, and, and every episode I've seen, there's always like phone calls in the middle of the night, it's like, oh man, he's dead. I can't believe it. 
<laughs> I cried. I cried all night. I cried when I heard him. You know, it's, it's just like the, 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 mel- the endless melodrama. Anyway, we could go on, but I guess what I'm saying is the dark side of the ring. Uh, I, I watched it on Hulu, so I guess that's where it's available. It's on Vice TV, wherever you, where, you know, whatever. If you, if you have access to it, uh, you know, and if you're at all interested, you know, I actually, I, I, you know, I do competitive trivia as a hobby and, um, they, they seem to be in one of these leagues I was in, they ask a lot, they were asking a lot of wrestling questions and I was like, I got to plug these holes. (laughs) So, and, and, and I've, I've plugged the holes, so to speak. I know, I know more about wrestling now. It's only, I don't have to watch it on a weekly basis. I, I want to know, it's like, it's like auto raising. It's like, I want to know about it. I don't necessarily want to like, you know, devote my life to it. So, uh, yeah. but this, this, this is a great show and, uh, and, and a really fun piece. Uh, so, so, uh, Kevin, thank you for, uh, for that. And we'll, uh, we'll see you back here, uh, hopefully soon. I, I was here earlier. I was here for like a half hour and it, I was in a room, but not in a room. It was like two yeah. weeks or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sometimes your arms bent back. So, um, so, uh, all right, let's, 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 uh, you wrote about, uh, Made for Love on HBO Max, which, uh, is an adaptation of a 2017 Alyssa Nutting novel, a very, very strange novel about, um, a, a, a woman who has a microchip implanted in her head and is kind of kept prisoner by a tech billionaire. Uh, and they adapted it into into a show, um, and uh, and you you love and people seem to love this show, Made for Love. I, I think it's great. And and real quick before we get into that, uh, I don't know if Steven's still around, but um, Gravity Falls, don't sleep on that. It's fantastic. You, it it okay. is on Disney Plus, and it is fantastic. Um, anyway, yeah. Made for Love. Um, you recommended the book to me. I had not read the book, but I had seen the first episode at South by Southwest. They did a screener of it um, at the festival, and I had access to the next few episodes before it debuted. So I, I was already in the bag for it at South by Southwest, you know, just from that pilot. I think the pilot is fantastic. And it, it yeah. within the first 30 seconds, I was laughing. I mean, there's a great visual gag, you know, within the first 30 seconds of the episode that I was like, okay, I'm in. You got me. You, you only have <laughs> to lose me now. Um, but it, it is a very good adaptation, and I think no small part because of an excellent cast. I am a stand for Kristen Milioti, who was uh, from How I Met Your Mother as the mother in the in the last season, <clears throat> who almost right. saved that show. <laughs> you know, before it yeah. turned and into she's a also, big Kristen, Right, Kristen Milioti is also the star of probably the best episode of Black Mirror, the uh, USS Callister. She's fantastic in that. And, and perhaps and, the best episode of Mythic Quest. She's she's the ringer. She comes in and she just does incredible work. And uh, yeah. Palm Springs. She was in Palm Fantastic. Springs. Yeah, she was one. I I I don't particularly love Palm Springs, but uh, as a as a as an Infinite Time Loop movie fan, but she is she is I mean, she's just a magnetic presence, and she has carved out this niche as the sort of like dystopian sci-fi uh, heroine in some ways, comedy heroine. Absolutely, yeah. and I mean, I, I, I call her God's gift to screenwriters in the review because I think she's she's just nails every line reading, every physical. Mo- I mean, she's just at, so good in the show that yeah. when she's not in on screen, like the show suffers in a weird way. That that even in yeah. any scene that she's not in, it's like, oh, well, this isn't as good as the stuff where right. we're just focused on. Although her. it seems like she's on the screen a lot. She's, she is. She is. She's the central. There's a few episodes in the middle that sort of diverge into these side characters, and um, that's not uh-huh. quite as good. But but uh, the other good presence in the show <clears throat> is Ray Romano, who is absolutely great as her de- as mm. her kind of a negligent loser, kind of a uh, uh, sex doll having dad. Um, he's great, and the yeah. scenes with the two of them together are fantastic. They are just great 
the, the, great the, interplay between the two of them. The sex doll, the sex doll, by the way, um, is uh, the uh, model for the sex doll is the author Alyssa Nutting herself, who po- I saw this on Twitter. <laughs> She posed for photos, and that is, like, the sex doll is, like, she's, like, I want to make myself the sex doll. Alyssa Nutting is a very strange writer. Um, uh, a good, she's a great writer, uh, but, you know, Made for Love is, 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 which they don't talk about in the book, but there's a lot of dolphin sex in the book. Thus, man having a sex with, has sex with a dolphin. I, I really liked, I mean, you recommended, I had not read the book until you recommended that I check it out before I write, before I, you know, dive yeah. into the TV show, which I did. And it. I think the book is is really interesting and and has a lot of the same you know humor and, and same kind of tone yes. as the, the the show, but it, it, the book exhausted me. I really you know e- you know there's so much trying to be cleverness in e- almost every paragraph that I was like yeah. it, it, I, I halfway through I was like okay I think I'm I'm done yeah. I'm exhausted here. Yeah. Oh, Whereas the show flo- the the show is more is it has more uh, control over the material. Better pacing, I think, slower yeah. pace, and, and, you know, built for the long haul. I think they really intend to make it multiple seasons and have that kind of confidence. <clears throat> so yeah. they, there's a lot of chunks of the book and even characters from the book that are not in the TV show in the first season, uh, from, from what I can understand. So uh, yeah. I think they are, you know, stretching out the plot a little bit more, taking their time with it, choosing their moments, and not just throwing so much stuff at you like the book does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I was going to add to Alyssa Nutting is also the not, uh, her other more um, most prominent book is called Tampa, which is an extremely uh, graphic book about a uh, high school teacher who seduces her students. Um, I mean, it is there's a lot of sex in that book, um, and it, it, it is it is hardcore. And you know, I, I noticed too, I was, I was looking at Alyssa Nutting's uh, Twitter feed. Um, it appears that she has kind of transitioned away from writing novels now that she has a, you know, I, I would do the same thing if I had a successful HBO show. You know, why, why not, uh, why not just take, take that? Because you, you're getting your work out to a lot more people. So, um, you know, Omar highly recommends Made for Love. Uh, uh, Black Mirror meets Silicon Valley. It's kind of like Black Mirror yeah. the sitcom, basically. And we're closing this week with the most professional wrestling-like song I can think of, The Final Countdown by Europe. Such drama in and out of the ring, uh, Dark Side of the Ring, now airing on Vice TV. This has been the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. I've been joined by many, many contributors. I don't know why and how I have so many great contributors, but I'm very lucky. And you are lucky as well to get to read them all on Book and Film Globe. We'll be back next week with more coverage of the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next time. It's the final countdown. The final countdown. I always value books and films, and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, 
concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.